another of Political Yeti's Politics Podcasts. This is a Brexit special. Um, I'm James Miller. Regular listeners may remember a few weeks ago I was joined by Oliver Eilott of the Institute for Government to answer some questions on Brexit. Uh, as I remember it, he basically trash-talked all the other think tanks. Uh, so this week, the head of one of those think tanks, although he's going to tell me he's not the head of a think tank, uh, joins me to uh, bite back, trash talk the Institute for Government with a bit of luck, but more likely answer lots of Brexit questions since Article 50 has now been triggered. Uh, it's Anand Menon of Britain in a Changing Europe. Hello. UK in a Changing Europe. UK in a Changing Europe. <laughs> Well, that's a good start, isn't it? I thought it was Britain in a change, isn't it? Fantastic. Oh, I'm afraid not. I, I, look, I looked it up earlier and did my research <laughs> and everything, and I've just written it down wrong. Okay, well, my first question is, why is it called Britain in a changing Europe? Well, actually, it's not, so let's start that again. <laughs> why is it called UK in a changing Europe, given we are leaving Europe? Well, actually, before I answer that question, I'm going to make something very, very clear, which is I will never trash talk the Institute for Government oh, because... They have their own kitchens, their own chefs, and their they food do. is divine. They do. And if there is one institution in London that you need to keep well in with, it is the Institute for Government. They are brilliant, and I'm always hungry. Oh, well, so there we go. Is, this is all wrong. Not everyone has their own kitchen. Totally they're totally they're all their own. <laughs> you don't lead a think tank. It's yeah. not called Britain in a changing Europe. And you're not going to trash talk the Institute for Government. Uh, Oliver Eilat, he's an idiot, isn't he? He well, doesn't know anything. doesn't know as much as you, does he? Yeah, but he's at the IFG, so he must be good. Well, he must be well fed. <laughs> uh, yes, UK in a changing Europe. Uh, we're not in Europe, we're leaving Europe. Well, we were set up uh, in 2015, and hand on heart, one of the reasons we're called the UK in a changing Europe is quite often someone says we need a name, and we came up with one rather quickly. Uh, <laughs> that's probably too honest, let's hope the funders aren't listening. Uh, but at the time, what we were thinking was, we're going to have a referendum at some point. Mm. Uh, this was before the general election, so we didn't know how soon we'd be having a general election. But there were two things to watch. One was the fact that the EU itself seemed to be falling apart with migration, the Eurozone crisis, and the other was that our, our place in the EU was in doubt, and we wanted to capture both. And of course, since then, one side of that equation has dominated our attention because the Conservatives won the election, they called the referendum, we had it, and we voted to leave. So the EU falling apart has all rather fallen by the... Well, it's kind of background noise yes. at the moment, yeah. Um, as you say, you started it in 2015. Why and how? How do you start your own think tank? What do you do? Just who do you ask? How do you how do you do it? Who well, do? I'm going to have to be honest again now and say it really wasn't my idea. And let me say that the, the the credit for this goes to the SRC, who are the the research council for the social sciences in the UK. So right. they give research funding to social scientists. Yeah. And the background, very quickly, is they'd done something like this for Scotland. They'd set yes. up a centre in Edinburgh oh, yes. to provide impartial advice, impartial research-based information about the Scottish referendum. It worked quite well. In mm -hmm. fact, it worked very, very well indeed. Uh, directed by my uh, friend and colleague, Charlie Jeffrey from the University of Edinburgh. Yes. And so when the question of Britain's place in Europe was being talked about in political circles, they said to themselves, hang on a sec, shouldn't we do something similar for this? Ah. At which point they advertised for someone to come in and start talking about this. I applied, I was lucky enough to get it. Soon thereafter, the Conservatives won the general election and we went into uh, panic mode and the whole programme was expanded. See, so, so you... Uh, I fell on my feet. You didn't get... You didn't set up your own think tank. You... Were given it well I was given the funding 
yeah. and the ability to create an office. We have a lovely little office now with Ben, Phoebe, Nav, who run the show. Mm-hmm. And around them, we have a number of what we call fellows who are academics from around the country with particular specialisms. And essentially, we pay part of their salary so that they can do stuff for us, write things for us, appear at our events and so on. What do you do all day as a think tank? Sit around thinking is the obvious one in well, a tank. Well, there's, you, there's, what, what? there's an awful lot of thinking. Yeah. An awful I mean, is lot that of coffee. Actually what you do. You yeah, sit around yeah. thinking I, I have stuff. lots of lunches yeah. with people, and we call them meetings. Uh, at the moment, and I'm sure it's not normally like this, our work is meeting with people, figuring out what they want from us and trying to deliver it. So today, I've just come from the Department of Business. Before that, I was talking to a couple of MPs, all of whom were saying, could you possibly help us do some work on A, B and C? So it is, it isn't what I imagined it would be. I would imagine it was far more lunch and far less meetings. But at the moment, <laughs> there are too many meetings. I actually haven't had any lunch. Uh, and the world is going slightly mad because everyone wants to know about Brexit and everyone wants to know different things about Brexit. Indeed, uh, as do I, which I'm about to hit you with. Although I should explain before we go on to the Brexit questions, we're sitting, it's a lovely day, so we're sitting outside, uh, which is why you might hear helicopters and wind and Big Ben in about seven minutes' time. Um, that's unless Anand can knock off every question about Brexit in seven minutes, which I think is unlikely. Um, so let's start with, um, this is quite a complicated one, Brexit. Is it good or is it bad? Well, <laughs> quite good for the UK in a changing Europe I have to say uh, I'll, I'll answer it in several parts firstly we don't know because we don't know what our ultimate relationship with the EU will be we've got some clues mm-hmm. uh, so it will mean a change there is no doubt at all that Brexit will mean a pretty serious change in terms of our economy uh, and how the country works simply because it looks like we're going to be outside the customs union in the single market yeah. we're going to have to reorientate some of our trade away from Europe to other trading partners we will not be able to trade with Europe as much or as easily as we did before and that has implications what those implications are are going to differ by region by firm by sector if you export a lot to the European Union it's going to affect you a lot if you don't export at all to the European Union it's not going to affect you so much so the picture is varied but the changes that are coming are big and, you know, we've said before that, that Brexit is one of the greatest challenges, if not the greatest challenge the British state has faced since the Second World War. I stand by that. OK, but that doesn't really answer the question. Thank you. <laughs> Overall, I mean, I, I mean, I guess, yeah, you, there is no such thing as an average person, clearly. Um, and like you say, if you run a business, exports, if you run a business that wants to export to, mm-hmm. uh, with the EU, then yeah. you're going to be uh, laughing because Liam Fox is going to be doing everything he can to help you. But... If, let's pretend there's an average man in the okay. street. Um, it's going to be, uh, you know, sitting in London, we all go, oh, it's going to be terrible. Um, everybody outside London voted for Brexit and thinks it's going to be wonderful. Which one is nearer to the truth? Again, I suppose partly that depends on what you value. I mean, there are people out there like Nigel yeah. Farage who says... I don't care if migration is good for the economy. We need less of it. This is about identity, not about economics. And if having less migration means that our economy is smaller and we're slightly poorer, so be it a price worth paying. If you're the sort of person that worries about Britain not being in charge of its own destiny, who found the European Union frankly irritating and and interfering in our daily lives, and you're likely to be a lot happier that that's no longer the case, Brexit's great. If there's a small economic cost to be paid, so be it. The other thing I would say, and this isn't just me hedging sitting on the fence, which I always try and do, is 
Ultimately, who wins and loses from Brexit is going to be a decision taken by our government. That's to say, even if, you, okay. if you're one of those people that thinks, like most economists do, that because of Brexit, our economy is going to shrink. Mm. Okay? At least in the short term, our economy is going to shrink. But who feels that pain is going to be a decision that depends on where the government decides to let that pain fall. If government says, okay, less well-off people have suffered enough, so even in the face of falling tax revenues, we've got to make sure they're okay, yeah. then they can do that. But there will be a degree of pain, at least in the short term, because our economy will shrink and our economy will have to adapt. So if you are a, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you're a petty-minded racist, mm -hmm. then Brexit's going to be brilliant. If you are somebody who likes having a job and money, then in the short term, at least, it's not going to be so good. More or less, yes. Though, I have to say, when it comes I mean, to the petty-minded... There are different when sorts it, of people in the world who are petty-minded racists when it, like money. No, no, well, let's start with the petty-minded racists. The petty-minded racists might indeed think, brilliant, they can't just come here whenever they want. It could be, and again, it depends what deal we end up with, that we find that migration doesn't change. We get the same numbers of people coming in. There might be people out there who say, and this is very much the view of the people who call themselves the liberal, liberal Brexiters, mm. we like migration. We want it about the same level, but we want to be in control of it. So they okay. might be happy just because we're in control rather than because the numbers have changed at all. But we have to wait and see. And remember, in the budget last week, the OBR document, based its predictions for the British economy on the assumption that migration will be up around the 200,000 mark. Yes. Um, I should point out for the avoidance of doubt, I'm not suggesting that all Brexiteers are petty-minded racists. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, really. Um, here's the, here's the, the, the basic question that got sent in then, talking about money in the economy. Uh, you know, it, it, on the face of it, it's a stupid question, but it's not. What does it mean for the price of fish? Um, what does it mean for the price of stuff? Well, I, I have noticed that Lego is already more expensive. Well, that's presumably because Lego is priced in euros at source, yeah. and so there's an exchange rate issue. I mean, and we see that, you know, I've noticed that Apple products cost more now. Uh, there was apparently an email sent out by Sonos saying, sorry, but there's a 20% price hike, and this is because of the exchange rate. So the exchange rate will impact on things, and yeah. exports, if the pound stays low, will be more expensive. Yeah. Uh, Agriculture is the big question, and again, this is going to depend on that we are currently part of the common agricultural policy, which to all intents and purposes means that Britain doesn't have an agricultural policy. Yes. What happens to the farming sector and the livelihood of farmers, and by extension what therefore happens to things like food prices and food availability, is going to depend on what the government decides to put in the place of the common agricultural policy, and there aren't many clues as yet. Andrea Ledsom's in charge of that. She is, well, insofar as any minister outside of number 10 is in charge of their own sector, yes she is. Does that fill you with confidence that it will be an excellent agriculture policy that they come up with? It fills me with uncertainty, if only because I can't remember hearing her speak about agricultural policy. Maybe that's just me, I haven't been listening hard yeah, enough. She has but, made a couple uh, of speeches. But, uh, I haven't been following the agricultural policy debate, but what I, what I get the sense of is we're a very long way away from formulating a comprehensive approach to agriculture, which is what we'll need when we're out. Is that because you're uh, a liberal elitist? Um, and I count myself in this in a way. In the, you know, it's a kind of jokey question about the price of fish. But actually, agriculture, you think agriculture and fish fisheries are important mm -hmm. and we sit in London and are basically sort of amazed that people still herd sheep and mm -hmm. catch fish and stuff uh, so it tends to get overlooked in the debate and yet it's going to be uh, one that people are going to feel quite 
tangibly they're going to feel the effect on agriculture and fisheries when they go shopping every week? Well, they might not feel the impact on agriculture and fisheries. They'll feel the impact on food prices, yeah. which I think is a, is a whole different thing. But yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, even though you very kindly call me a liberal elitist, I still eat <laughs> as often as possible, in fact. So, you know, I will notice this too. Yeah. But yeah, the the price of things in the shops will change. Imported food will, I think, remain more expensive than it was before the 23rd of June last year, simply because the pound has dropped quite significantly. Um, is that the main impact? I mean, what, what are people going to notice first? What are people going to notice most once we're out of the EU? Well, one of the obvious things that people are going to notice is European citizens here are going to find their lives getting a lot more complicated. And they'll get more complicated because their lives will involve paperwork. Because once we're no longer member states, they won't be able to live and work here as of right. They might be able to live and work here, but they might have to jump over some hoops in order to do so. Whether those are permanent residence forms, of which we hear so much nowadays about how long they are and how expensive they are, or proving residence, proving that you've paid a certain amount of tax, they will need to be a bit like if any anyone listening has tried to work in the United States, there is a ream of paperwork you've got to fill in before you're able to do that. It'll be like that, which is obviously a pain. Um, how's that going to affect, again, your ordinary man in the street? I mean, that's really going to affect your European... Uh, residents here, the impact there is going to be felt on, you know, is this what we're talking about when we can't talk about, you know, the fruit picking jobs, the Mm -hmm. NHS, all Mm -hmm. this sort of stuff, is that where you're going to actually notice that? Yeah, you'll notice it in the NHS. If we have a serious fall off in the numbers coming here, and there are people, my colleague Jonathan Portes has said repeatedly, there will be a drop off in migration because of things like the exchange rate. Mm -hmm. If you're Polish, it's it's 20% less good value to live here now because of the devaluation of the pound. Why don't you go to Germany instead? So if we do get a drop-off, it is areas like the food and drinks industry. You heard about the the person who runs HR in Pret the other day saying one in every 50 applicant is British. So you will notice that when you buy a coffee, you will notice that when you go to a hospital. You will probably notice it in South Lincolnshire as well because we depend on migrants to pick the fruit. Okay. Um, I mean, you're not painting come back to my question whether it's good or bad it sounds pretty bad so far what's going to be good what are people going to notice that's good well if we manage to sign very impressive trade deals with other countries what we might find is that our trade with those countries becomes a lot easier and there's a lot more of it we might find for instance that we're far better able to export things to asia than we were before this creates wealth in the economy and we might be able to in that way compensate if you like for the lack of trade with with the european union i do believe i think i am fairly clear in the short in the short term i think it's going to be rocky because our economy is going to have to change in shape longer term who knows it might be that we manage to adapt we become the great trading nation that the conservative uh levers used to be argued Mm. about it will take time and of course there are obstacles in the way it's all very well saying we want to sign a trade deal with india the first thing the indians will say is yeah that's great liberalised visas and we'll talk about it. Yeah, I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? I mean, you know, you, th- you by your own admission, think about this a lot. Mm-hmm. So, realistically, you, we do a lot of trade with the EU. I appreciate we could do a lot of trade with other countries as well, but realistically, are we going to be able to... Uh, well, I suppose we want to do trade with the EU as well, but make that switch and start trading with 
I don't know who these other countries are we're going to be trading with. Maybe you do. But are we going to be able to make that switch and, and sort of fill the, the gap that's going to presumably open up? It will be difficult. And it will be difficult. Let me give you a few reasons why that's going to be difficult. One, because I don't believe we will be able to trade to the same extent with Europe as we could when we were in the EU. Yeah. The Prime Minister talks about frictionless trade. She's also said we're going to be out of the customs union. I don't see how you square that circle. If you're out of the customs union, you have borders, you have customs checks. We might well have tariffs. Trade will be harder because of that. So there is something to compensate for. Now, trade deals with other countries are all well and good. They're never easy to sign because the thing about trade deals is that they want to protect their interests. So take all this talk about Donald Trump and us being at the front of the queue rather than the back. Mm. That's great. But what was Donald Trump's slogan when he was running for election? It was America first. So when he comes to sit down and negotiate a trade deal with us, surprisingly enough, his focus isn't going to be on British jobs or the British economy. It's going to be on American jobs and the American economy. There will need to be some hard bargaining for us to get anything out of that deal along the lines of what we want for our own benefit. And, I mean, I don't want to bring up your enemy Oliver Eilert again, but he did say we have no experience of, of this. Well, who's going to do this uh, negotiating? I mean, the Americans have got plenty of experience of making trade deals and basically bullying other countries into mm -hmm. doing as they say. Mm -hmm. We don't have experience of either bullying or being bullied. So it's going to be, I don't know, I can't see, can you see a, a happy conclusion to all Well, I, I would, firstly, let me say the Institute for Government is a great organisation. But secondly, <laughs> uh, I don't think it's true that Britain has no experience of bullying others, but it's certainly well. true that we lack trade negotiators at the moment. But, you know, the Department for International Trade is getting up to strength, getting up to size, they are hiring people. When it comes to the time to actually formally negotiate, which remember is after we've left, Yes. I don't think the question of a lack of experience will be that serious. I think the more serious problem is the fact that trade deals require painful trade-offs. And the one thing we will discover is you have less leverage as a country of 65 million than you do negotiating as part of a block of 500 million. Um. Okay, uh, you mentioned bullying. It just, for some reason, the phrase Empire 2.0 springs to mind. <laughs> um, given that the people who are going to be negotiating are banding around phrases like Empire 2.0, I don't know, maybe you think that's a great phrase and it bodes well, or do you think it doesn't bode very well? Well, I have to say, from memory, I think it was an article in The Times, what was said was that this was a phrase being bandied around ironically by some civil servants in the relevant departments rather than by the ministers themselves. Mm. But the fact that some people somewhere, and civil servants are going to be doing the, the negotiating, right? They are, but I don't think those are civil servants who take this effect. Well, they're thinking about it in an ironic way. Uh, I do not share the optimism of some ministers about the fact that the Commonwealth are falling over themselves <laughs> to have great trade deals with us and to get closer to us. I think. Yes, the countries like New Zealand are making very, very positive noises. The Australians are too. But nobody lives in New Zealand or Australia. Well, I mean, really? some people do, and there are no. Wait, it's not. No, no. Don't oh, get me wrong. Man. I'm not for a moment. I'm not for a moment arguing that this is going to compensate for lost trade with Europe. I'm saying that there are some members of the Commonwealth who might sign trade deals with us. But overall, no. I don't detect in India, for instance, an enormous enthusiasm for signing a trade deal with Britain, particularly a trade deal on our terms. Yeah, um, it, it smacks of a. I don't know, a slightly worrying mindset. They're even mentioning the empire. Uh, you know, because there are Brexiteers who, let's face it, that's what they're thinking of. I mean, they, they argued throughout. So, oh, it's all right, the EU, we'll just swan off and do deals with the Commonwealth. Com you know, just 
monumentally misunderstanding history, I would suggest. They think the Commonwealth are desperate to be our chumps. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, I think we're going to face considerable hurdles when we come to the negotiation table with the Commonwealth. History being one of them. History being one of them, and memory. Yes. Um, OK, a couple of questions that were sent in about, uh, as you say, the, the trade deal with Europe, which presumably there will be a trade deal with Europe. We will come to some sort of agreement, or, or do you think we might just drop out with I, nothing? I think there's a real danger of us dropping out with nothing. I would like to hear a bit more modulation in the tone coming from our government about this. Uh, the tone has been a little bit threatening, a little bit bombastic. Uh, I think John Major spoke wisely about this. The problem with the trade deal is we have to do the Article 50 deal first, at least in principle. Yeah. And I worry that as soon as people start talking money, they fall out very, very quickly indeed. Mm. And the first thing that the other Europeans are going to want to talk about is the so-called Brexit bill. Yes. Uh, now, figures are being bandied about. But what's important is how this is presented politically and in the press and to public opinion. And I can see this spiralling out of control all too easily if both sides aren't sensitive to the other's feelings, if you like. Explain the Brexit bill to me, because what are we paying for in this bill? Well, we don't know what we're paying for. And the first stage of the negotiation, curiously enough, is about what we're going to negotiate about. But what people are talking about are things that range from the EU institutions gives rel relatively generous pensions to its staff. Mm -hmm. We are involved in that because we signed up to the European Union. We were members. We mm -hmm. signed up to the pension arrangements. So we need to pay our liabilities for that. That's several billion pounds. Other people in the EU are saying, well, look, there are budgetary programmes outstanding that you have agreed to within the framework of the current budget. You've got liabilities. You've got to pay those. Other people still are saying, well, the EU has made loans to some countries. It made those loans on the assumption that you were in. You have liabilities to pay there. There's a long, long list. Now, what the British government has said is we do not agree with all the issues on your list, let alone getting to the point of costing them up. So the first stage of the negotiation is they will sit there, the Europeans will doubtless present their list, and the British negotiator will say, actually, two, three, five, and seven, we're not going to negotiate because we don't think we should pay them. Don't we also have assets? Yes, that is the other side of the coin, is, in principle, we might be uh, due some of the assets that we leave behind that we have also contributed to. So you will see the articles out there costing the European Commission's building in Brussels, or whatever it might be. That's not going to be much, though, is it? That's just, I don't know, but that, that feels like small change compared to a pension fund. Yes, pension fund. Do we funds. have some sort of asset in the pension fund? That we, if we've paid into it, do we get a bit of that back or something? Not as much as the outstanding liabilities. I think that's more than cancelled okay. out. That's uh, the way pensions work, I think. Um, the budget contribution that we make just now, mm -hmm. 350 million. Mm -hmm. Is it 350 million? No. No, of course it's not. Um, when's that going to stop? It'll stop when we leave. Not before? No. There'll be no tapering, there'll be no... No, we're a member state, we are a full member state until the day we're not a member state. Okay, so 2019 is when the NHS starts getting its money? Yep, unless they decide to extend the Article 50. I mean, it is possible, I think it's unlikely, but it is possible that they'll extend the Article 50 period. Yes, that's true. Um, although you missed my deliberate mistake, the NHS isn't going to get any of it, is it? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, will there be a sweetheart deal on customs and trade? We sell them loads of stuff. Yeah, they yeah. want to sell their BMWs. Oh, they're going to be on their knees, aren't they? Begging for our, our well, the first thing Melton Mowbray pork pies and whatever else it is we sell them. Interesting cheese. BMWs. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> Nissans and all that. Um, there is no great appetite amongst the people I've spoken to to 
allow us to cherry pick bits of the customs union to say we're in it for cars we're out of it for something else that will be a real struggle i think and actually more broadly the one bit of theresa may's lancaster house speech i just didn't understand and i keep meaning to ask someone to explain this to me is how we can be out of the customs union which the ability to sign our own trade deals implies yeah. whilst at the same time having frictionless non-tariff trade with the rest of Europe that seems to be a contradiction in terms to me just sign a deal sign a trade deal that says frictionless non-tariff trade well so we sign we, we sign a deal saying we're going to undermine the very principle on which this customs union is built but don't worry it's just for us no one else should try and follow suit yeah and they'll say well we want to sell you BMW so whatever you say Britain excellent okay right. I wish I shared your optimism Isn't that how it's gonna work well the, the, the sounds from Germany and it's interesting I mean I I was in Germany a couple of months ago and talking to people about this, saying exactly this, but look, your economy is going to suffer too. And one businessman said to me, the problem with this is it's a bit like Russia and Crimea, which gave me pause. And he said, well, let me explain. Oi, oi, yes. when, when Russia invaded Crimea, loads of businesses went to the Chancellor's office and said, Chancellor, this is dreadful, we know, the Russians shouldn't be allowed to get, off, get away with it, but we can't afford to have sanctions on Russia because we have so much trade with Russia. Mm. To which the Chancellor said, sometimes politics takes yes. primacy over economics, and this is one such time. The mood music from Berlin at the moment is this is a second such time, where actually preserving the sanctity and the integrity of the EU and its rules takes precedence over any short-term economic loss from trading with us. The other example, the Dutch. The Dutch equivalent of the OBR have calculated that the loss to them of us leaving the single market will be in the order of 10 billion euros over 10 to 15 years. Mm. They're just factoring that into their financial planning. Is it a good time to start making cars in Britain? We do make cars in Britain. Should I go and buy the Rover brand and start making British cars in Britain? Because it's going to be like really well, expensive. Unless to get. you're significantly richer than I was led to believe you are, because well, I think they'll Rover brand must be cheap. Nobody's, that must be dirty. <laughs> you can get that for free. Come on. I think. It'll be very, very interesting to see what happens to the car industry. I mean, everyone's agog about what the deal was with Nissan. Yes. And subsequent to that deal, we've heard noises from Nissan that maybe even they don't think the deal was as good as they thought it was at the time. But it is very hard to see why companies would decide to keep investing here if trade with the rest of Europe becomes significantly harder than it is now. Yeah. Unless the government can offer some kind of sweetness. And that, of course, brings us to the point that if our economy is shrinking in the short terms, if tax revenues do go down in the short terms, if, say, parts of the city leave, we're not going to have that much money to chuck about. So you want to set up Larder UK, start making national cars, driverless cars, that's, what we, that's the answer. British driverless British cars. driverless cars would be a fantastic idea. The one thing I would say, the one thing we talked about a little bit before the referendum, is the standards for the new generation of smart cars are being set in Brussels. Well, and one of the things that irks some of our car manufacturers is the fact that if we're out of the EU, they won't be sat around the table when those regulations are negotiated. Hey, but don't you remember Ladders? Yeah, no standards. I absolutely do rubbish. Absolutely. We'll just, we'll just make but our own I think, rubbish cars. Remember rovers? What, they were rubbish as well. I think what you'll find is that Larders were made in a country that wasn't a member of the European communities at the time. Well, we're not going to be either. There we go. We can just make our own standards, make our own cars that only sell in Britain. Nor indeed were Larders like exported all that widely. That's true. It'd be like living in North Korea or East Germany or something. Fantastic. Is that a possibility? I mean, from everything you're saying, it doesn't sound great, this. I think. Sounds, I mean, it could. It, it all sounds like. You know, it could work out. I, there's a lot of obstacles to it working out. I am, by temperament, 
a glass three quarters empty sort of person. So nothing looks good to me, uh -huh. let me say that first and foremost. But my job as an academic is to trace what might happen and that draws me to looking at the particular problems in the way. Uh, I'm not a cheerleader for either side, but it strikes me that we need to be prepared to find solutions to very, very complicated problems. Whether it's the customs union, whether it's the resources the civil service needs to carry this through effectively and well, whether it's the nows to figure out a solution with Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales when powers come back from Brussels that are actually devolved. These are very, very challenging things. I'm not for a moment saying they're impossible to achieve. I'm saying there are a lot of problems ahead and I hope we overcome them. Um, you rather excellently brought up Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland there. Let's talk about Scotland, uh, India F2 and all that. Um, how is it, could it be possible, was it ever possible to come up with a differentiated deal for Scotland and the rest of the UK? Well, we never got to the point of thinking about it because the Prime Minister slapped the idea down so soon. Yeah. What I understand from lawyers is it's very, very hard to imagine a situation where Scotland has one status while being part of the United Kingdom, whilst the rest of the UK has a different status. So it could be, it says, at four o'clock. Doesn't time fly? <laughs> uh, it could be... Come on, Big Ben, get on with it. Um, it could be that... It's going to bong now. Uh, yeah, I don't think... I, should, I could turn this into a ringtone and sell it. Um, I might have to do that after Brexit. Um, that'll be our main export, ringtones of Big Ben. You're going to have to um, tarry some ringtones. Uh, it could be that the Scots... Lawyers... Fit the tip between the pongs? It could be. Uh, no, is the answer. Um, presumably, the Scottish government's lawyers received the same. We should have done advice. this at midday. <laughs> um, so it was suggested the Scottish government were at it, essentially, asking for a differentiated deal. That's they what governments known. do, isn't it? They, they posture. I mean, if you look at the situation now, Nicola Sturgeon says she wants to have this referendum soon. Yes. Theresa May doesn't want to have it until we've left the European Union. Yes. There are many in the Scottish Nationalist Party who secretly think that actually having this referendum in 2021 will be the best of all worlds because, and this is their argument, firstly, you'd have had a general election at which the Tories will wipe yes. the board in England. So England will look very blue, Scotland won't, and you can say, look, we're politically two completely separate yeah. countries. Okay. Secondly, it might be that the first economic impacts of Brexit are being felt and that therefore the Scottish Government can turn to its people and say, see what the English have done to you. And thirdly, it might be that the oil price is a little bit higher. So mm. there, are, there are people in the SNP who actually wouldn't mind waiting till 2021. So in that sense, it would be the, the ideal outcome would be to ask for an early referendum, have the evil English deny them that early referendum to stoke up resentment yeah. still further, then wait till 2021, which was their preferred time anyway, and hold it. Um, how much of your time does India F2, or you know, a potential India F as it was a few weeks ago, India F2 as it looks like it's going to be now, um, how much does that take up your thinking? Well, I mean, it's early days as yet, and we defer to the Centre for Constitutional yeah. Change in Edinburgh, who do our, the equivalent of our job on that up there, but I would recommend their website to everyone. Uh, but yeah, we have people on our team, like Michael Keating from the University of Edinburgh, who work on Scotland, and it is going to be something we're thinking about a lot more. It's something we were always going to hold events on and write on as the Brexit process went forward, simply because even without IndyRef2, Brexit has implications for devolution because there are certain areas of public policy like agriculture, like fisheries, parts of which under the devolution settlement should go back to the devolved authorities. 
How that happens, to what extent, is going to be the subject of, to use a technical term, a bit of a bun fight between Whitehall and the others. So even in that respect, Brexit will change the nature of our devolution settlement. Yes, and the weird thing is that Scotland apparently wants agriculture and fisheries sent to Edinburgh so they can then join the EU and send them straight back to Brussels. That's a bit weird, isn't it? Well, the whole thing's a bit weird. I, I wonder to what extent. On that one as well. Well, I wonder to what extent Edinburgh is going to end up wanting to be liable for the subsidies that farmers might need. I mean, it's going to be very, very political, and there's going to be a lot of fighting over who gets what bit. Um, what are the big issues that are being missed? What are the, what are the things that I mean? I said what people are going to feel first. What are they going to feel most? What are people? You know, what are you thinking about in your think tank that other people are missing? We're still not a think tank. But the one thing I'm thinking Why are you about... centre? I don't know what we are, but we're not really a think tank. I mean, in the sense that we're based in a university, we're a network of academics from around the country. It doesn't well, feel like a think tank to me. A team. On it. I Ooh. found something on the web about it. He found something on the web about it. He says you're a think tank. So I obviously said something that sounded like, hey, Siri, oh, I don't want to do that again. No. Uh, <laughs> The the, the, bri- the broader international aspects of this are something I think are being underplayed both in the debate and by government. And by that I mean that whilst we're Brexiting and obsessed with the customs union and rules of origin and all those things, yeah. you've got a world where you've got Trump, you've got a world where everyone in Asia is talking about how assertive and zero some of the Chinese are starting to be. You've got a world in which the Trans-Pacific Partnership might fall down because the Americans aren't going to sign it. You've got a world, in other words, that is dangerous and slightly unstable and you know Brexit will have implications for our foreign and security policy because we used to coordinate those within the European Union's foreign and security policies and I think that needs to be part of the discussion as we go into the Brexit negotiations because wherever we end up we're going to have to keep working with our European partners when it comes to foreign policy and I would like to think that government is thinking of ways to make that easy post-Brexit. So Brexit makes the world a more dangerous place? No, that's absolutely not what I said, but it was kind of you to portray it that way. Brexit is taking the world a more dangerous place. Brexit is taking place in a world that seems to me to be becoming increasingly more dangerous. So it could make the world a more dangerous place if government If we do it badly, no, no, if we do it badly, it could make it harder for us to work together with our closest partners in confronting some of the threats and uncertainties we face. Yeah. That would make things more dangerous. I think I put that a lot better than you did. I'm going to stick with what I said. But hopefully they'll get it right. I mean, that's the that's the bottom line here, isn't it? Is that it's about it's a hopey, changey thing. It comes down to it seems to me there's a lot of hope involved here. Well, it's a hopey, changey thing, but it's also a hopey, changey thing that I'd like to think was based on thought and analysis, in the sense that we can we can anticipate some of the challenges ahead, and it's worthwhile thinking them through before we arrive at them so that we can try and come up with solutions. I think some things are very, very hard to find solutions for. You know, if Theresa May rang me up and said, could you find me a solution that means we're out of the customs union but we don't have customs checks, I reckon I'd have to say, Prime Minister, I'd love to, but I don't think I can. Would you? Would you say that? Or would you go, oh, there's the Prime Minister on the phone. I mean, does she phone you up? No, no, that'd be one of those calls I missed because I was in the tube or something and she wouldn't ring back. Does anybody in number 10 phone you up for advice? Absolutely not. Does anybody, well, any people in government do that? You say you've been hanging around government debate. Hanging we do. Sadly, <laughs> 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 yeah. Can I have you as milk? It's not quite what I meant. But <laughs> you are offering advice too. We've done we've done briefing sessions for some government ministers. We've done briefing sessions for politicians as well. Uh, no. What we are, I mean, what 
you know, going back to your first question, what the ESRC had in mind for us was there are all sorts of academics doing all sorts of research on issues that have suddenly become incredibly important. Academics historically haven't been very good at telling people other than other academics about their research. So we were set up to help them do it. Um, okay, finally. You didn't sound very interested in that. Finally. I thought that was key. No, 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 I'm, I'm happy to keep talking. But I'm aware I've kept you long enough. I, I do that sometimes. You I watch go, me shivering. That's really interesting. And I think, well, I better, better wind this up. Um, and you mentioned academics, what academics don't normally do. Academics don't normally smile in their Twitter picture. What's that about? What? Got, the academics like a, don't? You've got like a smiley Twitter profile picture. You, people would take you a lot more seriously if you had like a hat on, if you had like a mortarboard or something Yeah, but like I don't that. aspire don't to be taken like a, seriously. You don't look like a, This is why we're the anti-think tank. You need to sort of be straight on, looking furrowed brow. No, no, because we're, we're the fun and exciting think tank. That's what we are. But then, don't you worry That's our market niche. I do worry about it. I worry about it a lot, yes. You need a, need a serious, serious picture like mine, I think. I can't remember what I've got. I think I'm laughing outside number 10. That's not really serious. Um, I shall bear that in mind. Well, and if my picture changes, it will be down to you. Here is the, uh, you know, here's the, the counterpoint to that. Now people are going to hear you talking with your super wisdom all about Brexit. They're going to go, okay, so he's got a smiley Twitter picture. He clearly knows what he's talking about because we heard him on that podcast. Um, and See, what I want to say now is sarky sod. But anyway. Oh, no, that's true. That's not sarcastic at all. I, that, in fact, it's sarcastic because I'm afflicted with a sarcastic tone of voice like that man. What was it? Ray in... That, the Mary Whitehouse experience you said yeah. the man who was yeah. uh, there you go young listeners look out at the Mary Whitehouse Mary Whitehouse experience um, no I was not being sarcastic at all that was all really good information and people are interested in it that's the thing the and they should go to our website absolutely people want to know forthwith need to know about it go to the website which is www.ukandeu.ac.uk there you go go to that website read all up on Brexit before it happens um, and well, get invited for a meal at the Institute for Government indeed and uh, any, any think tanks you want to trash before who should I who should I get on next in think tank world do you want to trash somebody if I can get them on to, to respond no I wouldn't trash them but I think you should get Springford and Tilford on from the Centre for European Reform as a double act which Centre they are Centre for European Reform ok coming for you Centre for European Reform and our next Brexit special I suspect there'll be a few uh, thank you to Anand Benon of UK Changing Europe for uh, all that wisdom and uh, no podcast next week because it is Easter uh, tune in the following week for another of Political Yeti's Politics Podcast thank you